0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. What could be better than watching Meghan and Harry is reading Matt Hancock, The Pandemic Diaries. Four.
1: What Matt Hancock seems to have put together is less an autobiography here than an alibiography.
0: Three. I mean, it really is a week, I think, of nothing to do with me, gov.
2: We're just pandering to Virtue signaling alarmists who say, oh, we can't have anything to do with oil and gas. One. We have the
1: start. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's a doom fest out there, Alison. We're building up to Christmas, yet our annual Christmas card ritual could fall foul of a postage strike. Time to visit some relatives But the train drivers and bus drivers, they're on strike too. Some winter, some perhaps. UK border force and baggage handlers are threatening industrial action. (laughs) And nurses and ambulance drivers are planning stoppages as well. And by the time the holidays are over and it's time for the kids to go back, teachers and university lecturers could also be refusing to work. There's not much Christmas cheer around, Alison, so we'll have to make our own here on Planet Normal. I know you're gearing up to watch Meghan and Harry the movie tomorrow when it's released (laughs) on Netflix. It sounds like a hoot. And then there's your new heartthrobs, Phil, Luke, the two Jordans, plus your special young friend, Jude. (laughs) There'll be an action on Saturday, taking on the French in the quarterfinal of the World Cup. So will it be bravo, bravo for les Anglais? Or could it be quel dommage? Can we do it, co-pilot? Can we really beat the French? Raising the spirits of our sulking, strike-prone nation?
0: It would be a shot in the arm, wouldn't it? And not COVID booster number six. It would be a very different shot in the arm for the nation. You keep teasing me about my completely platonic devotion to Mr Jude Bellingham, age 19. He speaks so well, you said. Oh, God. There was an actually very moving moment during the match against Senegal. I think it was about 59 minutes in where the entire England crowd started singing, Hey Jude. And I thought, imagine Lennon and McCartney, if they'd known all those years later that this... Honestly, Liam, I think he's an authentic genius of football. What do you think? We've got the talent. I mean, who was it who said that football's a game of two halves and then you lose to the Germans on penalties? At least Germany's gone home. So we're going to be spared that fate, aren't we? Well,
1: it was the great Scottish Liverpool manager. Football's not a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. Bill Shankly. Yes. Yes. I do think we've got a really good team. We're playing the French. They are the current world champions. They are ranked well above us in the FIFA listings. They have played incredibly well in this World Cup. But then again, so have we. We've only conceded two goals. I think we've scored 12. And yet in the run-up to the World Cup, Alison, we played six matches and we won none, drew two and lost four. So it's England, isn't it? You never quite know what you're going to get. We are clearly capable of something special with those flair players, Phil Foden, Jude Bellingham, as you say. Sackers obviously having a fantastic tournament. Mm. And I do get the sense that the country's starting to get behind this team, at least England are. I know the French, the Scots, and those in Northern Ireland have rather mixed feelings when England does <laughs> well. But it could happen. There could be a miracle because we've certainly played very, very well. And I think also it's good that a lot of the carping and criticism that associated the start of this World Cup in Qatar, and it was a really controversial place to hold the World Cup for many, many footballing and non-footballing reasons. I do think now everybody's focused on the beautiful game and it's a diversion that we all need, I think, unlike the diversion that is Meghan and Harry.
0: From my armchair position, I think it could possibly be the Netherlands, Brazil in the final, but we'll see. (laughs)
1: Since when did you become a
0: footballing authority?
1: Do you actually know the offside rule? I know I've tried to explain it to you in the past, and you didn't get it.
0: Velma is bringing her COVID brain now to intensive <laughs> studying of the performance of centre Ford. So yes, in addition to rising at dawn to relish the latest uh, blast of allegations from the poor multimillionaires in Montecito, there's a grave risk that Meghan and Harry will have to go down from 16 bathrooms to 11, Halligan, if they can't continue to exploit the woes of their nearest and dearest. I mean, what a grim spectacle that is. It'll be quite interesting, I think, to see how things pan out, whether the king, of course, Charles, is, we've got children, haven't we, Liam? Imagine how awful you feel when one of your beloved kids is kicking up rough about you and your late mother, who you only lost three months ago. How sensitive is that? And your elder child, as well. So the sundering of two children. I know it's all good box office and Meghan and Harry are in hock. to Netflix for allegedly $100 million. So I don't think Netflix are going to be playing nice with cheerful memories of granny, are they? I think it could be very, very unpleasant. But what could be better than watching Meghan and Harry is reading Matt Hancock, The Pandemic Diaries. <laughs> The inside story of my battle against COVID by me, Matt Hancock, aged 44 and a half. Now, having started reading this, can I just Adrian say that? Adrian
1: Molstahl.
0: I think it's part of a promising series. Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall by Matt Hancock. How I Thawed the Cold War by Matt Hancock. Me aboard the last helicopter out of Saigon, Matt Hancock, even though I wasn't born. I mean, this is a shameless piece of work. You'll be amazed to learn, Liam, that Matt Hancock takes no responsibility for lots of people being shunted out of hospitals into care homes. I mean, it really is a week, I think, of nothing to do with me, Gov. Have you read any of this?
1: I have had a look at the diaries. And I should say, Isabel Oakeshott, who helped Matt Hancock with these diaries, she's a very fine writer. But I think as political diaries, you know, it's hardly Alan Clark, is it? It's hardly Tony Benn. It's hardly Dick Crossman. It's hardly even Alastair Campbell because all those great political diaries, and they are all great political diaries, mm. they're authentic because they were written in the heat of the moment. They were, yes. And barely changed afterwards. So all the foibles and doubts and failings of the individual involved are there laid bare to see. And that's why they're so entertaining, absorbing, historically important. What Matt Hancock seems to have put together is less an autobiography here than an alibiography. How I was right about everything at all times and everyone else is wrong. You know, there's overuse of the word infuriating, exclamation (laughs) mark, at the end of various entries. And I can't help but think... His poor children. Can't he just shut up for a while? Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And his wife. People have affairs. They split up. That doesn't necessarily suggest that somebody is deeply morally suspect. On the contrary, this is the normal ebb and flow of human behaviour. But to put it all out there in diary form, punting it for sales, trying to wring himself out of the wreckage of his political career – a sort of figure of fun. He's a smart bloke when all is said and done. He's got a fabulous education. He could contribute to public life in a dignified and valuable way. He could contribute enormously to the public inquiry with what he knows. He was in the room when so many important lessons were learned, when so many important mistakes were made. And yet preempting the public inquiry, his contribution is a combination of sort of showbiz and fiction, trying to position himself as some kind of wounded hero rather than a fickle public official who was obviously working under difficult circumstances, who made some good decisions but made some really bad decisions too. Rather than helping us all to learn from those and to learn about himself, he's just produced this quite absurd piece of writing.
0: Yeah, I was going to say to you, it seems to me really quite shocking for a former government minister to preempt the public inquiry in this way, getting his account in first. I want him under oath. I want him cross-questioned about the care home stuff. We've already had relatives of care home residents who obviously either died or were, were treated appallingly. They're calling the pandemic diaries are an insult to these people who suffered and died. And as you say, Liam, it's this branch of show business meets mass death, which isn't a good look. But I think that we are seeing these. And I should just say, by the way, that Isabel Oakeshott does get a few interesting, very revealing tidbits out of Matt Hancock. Yeah, she's a
1: top journalist. She knows how to tell a story. Yeah,
0: yeah she is. I mean, I wouldn't for preference have any proximity to this man at all, but that's her decision. I think she will be writing more about what she found out. Certainly, I think there's a piece in this week's Spectator about the mishandling of the pandemic. But there were some very revealing things. I don't know if you saw that there's an exchange of views when Hancock and Gavin Williamson, our other favourite knob, and um, <laughs> they're saying they know they shouldn't really be getting children in England to be wearing masks again in the class. But guess what? North of the border, Nicola Sturgeon has, of course, imposed her Scotty fatwa on the school children. They've all got to wear masks. So Gavin and Matt decide, oh, crikey, if she's going to be bringing that emotional blackmail to bear on us, we'll just capitulate and we'll say English school children have to wear masks as well, even though we know it's totally pointless and probably quite wrong and damaging. So We get that insight, Liam, don't we, into the way that politics governed so much of what was done during the pandemic. We
1: certainly do. And I think this week, Alison, amidst all the news, all the headlines I referred to at the top of industrial action, of football, of raw families falling out with each other and so on, I think something else has happened. I think lower down the page in the newspapers steadily, though, What we're seeing is an increasing number of stories, very well-sourced stories, even officially sourced stories about the impact of lockdown. Lizzie Roberts, Telegraph's health correspondent, NHS shut down more services during COVID than almost every European country. Cancer-related surgery dropped by more than a quarter in 2020 compared to 2019. These are figures being compiled by the likes of the OECD, by the likes of... The European Commission, by the likes of NHS England itself. What we're seeing now, Alison, officially on the record, but in retrospect, are the trends that the likes of Macmillan Cancer Research, you and I, Planet Normal, a lot of the guests that we put on, that other media outlets were poo-pooing, were denigrating during the difficult months of lockdown. A lot of what we said, a lot of what We were informed of by experts that we spoke to is now starting to come true. And it brings me no pleasure to say that. I only wish that decision makers like Matt Hancock and others, cabinet ministers, many of whom during this period, as you were, we both were, we were trying to influence them. We were trying to show them listen to this, look at these statistics. I've plotted you a graph. Have your civil servants shown you this, minister? I mean, my WhatsApp is full of discussions with cabinet ministers at the time, trying to convince them that actually they need to think about this in a different way and are they really doing the right thing? And that they bothered to do the research that we were doing. I'm an economist. You studied English literature, but we tried hard, didn't we, to really get to grips with the national statistics, the excellent statistics that were put together by the ONS day upon day. And of course, listening to George, are astonishingly coherent source, secret source within NHS England. I don't feel vindicated, Alison, and I'm sure you don't too, but I do feel concerned at what's now coming out.
0: I think we better clear the blast area, Halligan, because I'm just about to go off. Sir Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance. so listeners will have seen that the Chief Medical Officer for England, the Chief Scientific Advisor, familiar faces from next slide, please, during the lockdown. (laughs) Pat and Chris have co-authored a report on the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK and they said, now this is going to take you by surprise, Halligan, Britain will face a prolonged period of excess deaths after operations were cancelled and people avoided the NHS during the pandemic. Sir so Chris said that despite stressing public emergency care was always open for business, far fewer people presented at A&E during the first wave. Delays in patients coming forward for help, reduction in preventative medication will have led to later and more severe non-COVID illness. And Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance say that the combined effect of this will lead to a prolonged period of non-COVID. COVID excess mortality and morbidity after the worst period of the pandemic is over. Now, this is the sentence that had your co-pilot going into another dimension with fury. Undoubtedly, some people who would and could have come forward did not because a sense of altruism or perceived risk of being in hospital kept them away. I mean, altruism. Altruism. Nothing to do with you, Sirs Chris and Patrick, scaring the bejesus out of the population with your slideshow of doom. Nothing to do with both of you constantly telling people, stay home, support the NHS. Liam, we have had almost more than 900 more cancer deaths than would be expected since September.
1: And that is an official figure.
0: Those poor people could not access prompt scans diagnoses that they needed to prolong their life maybe even save their life and we have got witty and valence like two arsonists who started a fire standing there and saying to the public oh that fire is going to cause a lot of damage there's not going to be much left by the time that's burnt out. And in their advice, Liam, this is the absolutely astonishing thing. They basically say in their advice to successors, if they ever have to deal with a pandemic, that the speed with which the COVID vaccines were developed might lull politicians into a false sense of security and other new diseases, wait for this, possibly requiring social distancing and lockdowns for even longer. What part of absolute economic and social catastrophe have these two geniuses failed to absorb? No, 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 absolutely no lockdown, never again, never, never again. We've actually, I'm not even going to go into it, not only did that sort of statistic about the NHS shutting down more services, in the last few weeks, Liam... Eight children in Britain have died of this terrible, terrible strep A infection, what will be more commonly known as scarlet fever. And health officials have just admitted that the surge in cases is linked to lockdown. I mean, I just, I'm I'm sorry, you know me, I'm not normally speechless, but what can you say to people who suggest that next time there's a virus, they're going to have another lockdown, maybe even longer?
1: There's been so much information that's come out. If I was a cynical journalist, Alison, I'd say a lot of this stuff is coming out while England are going through the World Cup, while Mm -hmm. Meghan and Harry are tearing the royal family apart, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost as if it's a good time to bury bad news, um, to use that ghastly phrase. That's 900 statistic of excess deaths from cancer. That is from the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, an official Body, you've cited a lot of official data and official statements. There's been a slew of it in England. Macmillan Cancer Trust said that between March and August 2020, around 30,000 fewer people started their first cancer treatment compared to the year before. During 2020, 38,000 fewer patients received a cancer diagnosis in England. It's not because there was less cancer around; it was because a lot of people, including a lot of young people, including a lot of mums with small kids who didn't get their cancer diagnosis are now in a much worse situation and obviously that unfortunately is going to lead to a lot more deaths. I feel like as a public, we're being sort of gaslit here Mm. when it comes to these official pronouncements on COVID lockdown and it just leads me to conclude yet again that this public inquiry upcoming is so incredibly important and if it wasn't for other news going on, war in Ukraine and so on, cost of living crisis, energy crisis. I really do believe that the media would be fully focused on the terms of reference of that public inquiry, what we're going to learn from the public inquiry, and above all, some sense, given what we can understand from what Matt Hancock did, what Whitney and Valence said, what Boris said, what the whole decision making class said across medicine and politics, we need to understand how are we going to respond next time. And in some of the things that you just quoted there, it seems, oh, we're just going to go straight back into yeah. lockdown again <laughs> across the board. You know, who cares about the Great Barriers of Recreation? Who cares about what people like Shinetra Gupta say, the world's leading epidemiologists? Who cares about all these excess deaths caused by lockdown? That's what the official record is now acknowledging caused by lockdown and if they're caused by lockdown you have to then do a cost benefit analysis of what lockdown does and doesn't do you have to consider discretionary shielding you know shielding by age range depending on what the virus is you have to understand that this is a cost of living crisis but it's a cost of lockdown crisis too the world economy has not yet recovered from covid lockdown you know, the Chinese are now gradually easing their zero COVID policy because the population is literally freaking out about it. Massive protests. And even the Chinese, arguably the most authoritarian major country in the world at the moment, they are getting it and they are easing those restrictions to keep a lid on massive civil unrest. I do worry about what's going to happen next, Alison, in terms of the lessons we're going to learn from this public inquiry. And I know Shinetra Gupta has also been in touch with The Telegraph about this, right?
0: Yeah, she has. I was just going to say that I think when we're dealing with incredibly sensitive stuff like, obviously, these young children dying of what used to be known as scarlet fever. A lot of listeners will know that, of course, in Little Women, Beth, one of the March sisters, died of scarlet fever. And we thought that was left in the storybooks now that we've moved on from that. But I got in touch with Shinetra Gupta, Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at Oxford. Planet Normal listeners will know her as one of our most treasured sources. And Shinetra did, in fact, confirm to me at some length that this surge in what used to be called scarlet fever because children who were born during or just ahead of the pandemic were left with an immunity debt to its causative agent, group A, streptococcus. It's a very complex explanation, as you'd expect from someone of Shanetra's learning, but she's basically saying in her reply to me, that with endemic diseases like flu, we go into immunity debt as the winter sets in. So you'll get a bit more flu and then the herd immunity rises. So it's very seasonal, Liam. Normally we would get more disease in the winter and then we'd get out over the summer, the number who are immune fall, leaving us again with immunity debt in the winter. And what Shinetra said to me was, any small change to the transmissibility of the pathogen will disrupt this rhythm and can cause these pathogens to disappear by transiently cancelling this normal immunity debt. Now, to put that into simpler language, that with all this interference in the normal pattern it's contributed to what she describes as the very unfortunate re-emergence of scarlet fever as a cause of severe disease and death in young children. So basically, disturbing the natural order which was caused by lockdown can have a profound impact on a child's ability to resist disease. And Sinetra concluded by saying the immunity debt that we have incurred during lockdown will be gruesomely paid off. It will be paid off relatively quickly, we hope, and scarlet fever will once again become a storybook word, not something that's laying waste to six- and seven-year-olds in the United Kingdom. But that's just a reminder, a very grim and sad reminder, Liam, of when witty and Valance stand up and say, oh, yes, don't worry, old chaps. We've got our gongs. We'll just have another lockdown next time. And never mind people losing their beloved children. I mean, I am absolutely incandescent about it. But do you know what I wrote this week? I think you'll have laughed. at. You know, we've always got Bob, the resident bard on Planet Normal. But Alison wrote the 12 <laughs> Days of Strikemas. <laughs> Because we've had some complaints, believe it or not, from Planet Lawman listeners saying that, as you said in your intro, that we've been getting a bit gloomy because how the Mick Grinch stole Christmas. So I did on the twelfth day of Strikmas. My true love sent to me twelve hundred lecturers not lecturing, eleven thousand bags going slowly round the carousel at Heathrow because nobody's handling them, ten thousand nurses not nursing, nine million patients still waiting for that vital operation. 8,000 bus drivers staying home to watch the footy. 700 driving examiners double parking their bottoms on the sofa and opening the Terry's chocolate orange. 600 elves. Wait for it. Five old trains. (laughs) (laughs) Calling at four stations. 3,000 drivers shunting off to the pub. Two bags of crisps. And a drink for the the (laughs) RMT. Who says there's no light in the globe??
2: <laughs> Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse? Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. <laughs> Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc., are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode.
1: This week, given the gravity of national events, we invited a big beast onto the planet Normal Rocket. Peter Lilly studied natural science and economics at Cambridge, and then worked as an economist specialising in energy and international development. Elected as an MP in 1983, he held ministerial office in the Treasury, Trade and Industry and Social Security, joining Margaret Thatcher's cabinet in 1990, and he was later Shadow Chancellor, before standing down from the Commons in 2017. Lord Lilly has a range of interests and recognised expertise, from the environment to energy, from housing to international trade, and he currently serves on the Lord's Environment and Climate Change Committee. I started by asking him if he senses a change in the political mood music around the net zero debate, since energy security and pricing issues have been brought into focus by the war between Russia and Ukraine.
2: Yes, in fact, there's been a change even before that. I was one of the five people who voted against the Climate Change Act back in 2008. I made the mistake of reading the cost-benefit analysis which the government produced, and it showed that the... Benefits were less than the costs, and we shouldn't do things where the benefits are less than the costs. But that's become even more pronounced since the war in Ukraine. People are much more focused on the costs, though it's slightly ambiguous because obviously it's put up the cost of fossil fuels more than renewables. But that's probably a temporary thing, and we've got to be sensible for the longer term and do things which are not hideously expensive and bad for the poor, the cold, the old and those working in energy-intensive industries.
1: How have we got ourselves in this mess, Peter, where the UK has so little in the way of gas storage compared to continental European countries, where we've built hardly any nuclear power stations in recent generations, even though we were, at one time, the most advanced civilian nuclear power in the world? What is it about our politics that has led to so much
2: short-termism? I don't know. It's just politics. I think it's also that we suffer from a civil service, which is not very good at running projects because civil servants change jobs more frequently than politicians do. But in terms of gas storage, I think they took the view we were producing most of our own gas, so we didn't need to store it. Even now we produce half our gas. So we only have half the need to store it on the continent. But that wasn't a reason for giving out the other half, which we did because the cost of refurbishing the rough field was deemed too expensive. And they hoped we could get gas from other parts of the world. We can if we're prepared to outbid China and everybody else. And it's hideously expensive to do so, as we're discovering. So in light
1: of the energy security realities that have been highlighted by this East-West conflict, in light of the fact that energy bills are sky high and much of the political discourse is focused on the cost of energy at the moment, not just for households, but for firms too. What's your advice, given how much you've studied this subject, to number 10, to the people at the top of your party?
2: Well, the only ways you can bring extra energy on rapidly are onshore wind and onshore shale. And we should make it much easier to get planning permission for that. If people within a mile or two of, say, a Shellwell or a Winfield have a referendum and they're offered cheap gas or cheap electricity, if they give their go-ahead, I think a lot of them would say, yes, let's do that. They wouldn't just do it automatically, but they look at all the scare stories and find that they were bogus and we'd be able to go ahead. In the longer term, we also need to start redeveloping fields in the North Sea. They take longer to bring on stream than... Uh, onshore fields would. And we've got to recognise that we're going to need oil and gas for many years to come. It's better to produce our own than import it. And there are fewer emissions actually from, for example, having to compress oil and gas in Gata transport it here, then decompress it here, all of which create extra emissions. So we're just pandering to virtue signaling alarmists who say, oh, we can't have anything to do with oil and gas produced here. But Therefore, we'll have to import it from abroad, even though that's more emissions.
1: You are a scientist. You went up to Cambridge to study natural sciences, though I know from our previous discussions, you then switched to economics. You're a very analytical politician, always have been. You've never denied the science of global warming, have you? But you've wanted to drill down into the costs of the transition away from fossil fuels and how those costs are shared across society, What's it been like in recent years to raise these concerns, to raise these objections?
2: Well, as soon as you do, you get accused of being a science denier, which, as you say, is a nonsense. I have studied quite a lot, both at university and since the science of global warming. It's very robust, double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. The direct effect is it raises the temperature by one degree. That may be amplified by clouds, water vapor or diminished by other factors, those things less certain. But the idea that it will lead to the extinction of the human race is simply not true. If that were going to be the case, then no cost would be too great to prevent global warming and to decarbonize. But I put down a question a little while ago, asking the government whether they knew of any peer-reviewed science or anything in the intergovernmental panel on climate change which showed a risk of extinction or immiseration of the the human race. And they said there isn't any. There may be problems, there will be problems beyond a certain point if the atmosphere warms up, but it's not going to have that effect. We should take a cost-benefit approach, not an emotional approach. What do you think
1: of the government's commitment to banning, outlawing new petrol and diesel cars in the UK from 2030? Do you think that will happen? Or do you think the new real politic that's emerged since the war in Ukraine will mean that particular piece of legislation is scrapped?
2: I mean, I would love to see a transition to electric cars. I used to be a cyclist and I hated cycling behind cars and vehicles emitting nasty fumes. But it's going to be much more difficult than people imagine to transition to electric vehicles, not least because the world doesn't have enough of the materials to make batteries. The price of lithium carbonate, from which most batteries are made, has gone up, I think, 13-fold in the last 12 months.
1: Copper too, of course. You use a lot more copper in an electric vehicle than in a conventional vehicle.
2: Oh, absolutely. And a whole range of other elements and rare earths and so on in between are needed for uh, a move to net zero. But the people who sort of talk about this but know nothing about it just ignore these problems and think they can be wished out of existence. They can't. So you think electric vehicles are a bit of a blind alley? Well, uh, as I say, I hope not. I want to see them. I think demand for them will grow if we can make the batteries, if the cost of electric cars can be reduced, and if the availability of recharging points can be expanded enough. But it's going to be much more costly than people imagine. A lot of people just pretend that this whole switch to net zero can be done costlessly or even create uh, economic growth. It can't. It
1: won't. And yet we hear those things on television all the time, that renewables are cheaper.
2: I know, I wish they were, but they're not. Not when you take into account the cost of intermittency, that you have to have backup power stations for when the windmills aren't working. And those power stations are less efficient if they're just there to back up than if they were producing the electricity you know, full time when it's needed. So that greatly increases the cost. And I just wish people would be honest about this and say, okay, we're going to have to pay for it if they think it's absolutely necessary, or say, well, let's wait a bit until the costs come down and then invest.
1: Over your career, Peter, if I may say so, you've thrown yourself into knotty problems ever since you were Secretary of State for Social Security in the 90s. You tried to get your arms around the burgeoning welfare bill, and you certainly had some success at slowing down the rate at which welfare spending was rising. You're obviously a prominent um, participant in the debate on net zero, but immigration too. We've got over 40,000 small boat crossings now, this year alone. We're spending millions of pounds every day on hotel accommodation. I'm sure you don't envy the lot of Home Secretary Swala Braverman at the moment, but again, what's your advice to her?
2: She's right to focus immediately on the boat problem that will probably require legal changes. We've sort of created an opportunity for judges to make up laws that make them feel good rather than are in accord with views of the public or the elected representatives in Parliament who ought to be making laws. So we must override them and make the laws ourselves openly and clearly that will make it easier to return people who are essentially economic migrants and have no justifiable claim. But the real problem actually is not even the boat people. It's the number who are coming legally, lawfully to this country, which reached an astonishing net half a million this year, which is twice the rate it's been for the last decade. And the rate it's been going for the last decade is equivalent to the entire population of Southampton, Portsmouth, Nottingham, Middlesbrough, Oxford, Leicester, Derby and Carlisle. And we haven't rebuilt or duplicated those cities. And we're going to have to if we have immigration at this rate. And if not, we're condemning a generation of people already living here to live at home with their parents or squashed into bedsits until they're middle-aged. So it's your analysis,
1: Peter, that we do need to withdraw from the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights. If we do, that's a big symbolic move. This is a document that was written in the aftermath of the Second World War by many British lawyers. It was seen very much as a response to the atrocities of that great conflict, not least the Holocaust. It's
2: difficult to do this, isn't it? We can probably regain control for Parliament without leaving the ECHR by passing a, a law saying, notwithstanding rulings of the court, we can do this. And you know, lots of other countries do choose to ignore rulings. Indeed, the British government has chosen to ignore the ruling on votes for prisoners. So that can be done without leaving. The problem is that when it was created, everybody thought, oh, this is just codifying the human rights which have developed organically in the United Kingdom over centuries. Can't do any harm. But what it did was not just do that, but change the people who make laws from Parliament in this country to unelected judges on the continent, many of whom aren't lawyers.
1: Now, the immigration issue is linked closely in the minds of many voters to the issue of our housing shortage. You can make an argument, indeed I have in the past, that the immigrant population over the years, they've built a disproportionately large number of the houses. But of course, you need the legal environment, the regulatory environment that allows those houses to be built. But clearly, When you have pictures of many people arriving in the UK illegally and we have a housing crisis, the two are understandably linked in the public's mind. Tell me about what it was like being an MP in terms of getting houses built in your constituency. Hitchin and Harpenden, a wonderful part of the country, quite an affluent part of the country, if I may say so. Do you think our housing crisis is getting worse, Peter?
2: It is back at the beginning of this century I started looking into the issue because I'd always been a great defender of the green belt and yet every year the targets we were required to fulfill in terms of house building seemed to go up and yet birth rate was below our death rate I couldn't understand it so I wrote a paper which started off about housing but ended up about immigration once I discovered that All the stories that, you know, the problem in the southeast was people moving down from Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom were untrue. There was actually a net outflow from London and the southeast to the rest of the country, but a net inflow from abroad, which accounts for about 70 or 80 percent of new household formation. And that's why we have to build lots and lots of homes. We have a simple choice. and So I said publicly, we've got a simple choice. Either we move away from reliance on a continuous net inflow of people into this country, or we'll have to build ultimately on the Greenbelt. I was immediately assailed by all the normal suspects, Liberal Democrats, and then it still went on, so eventually I said well, now we're going to have to build on the Greenbelt. It's a terrible thing, I don't want to do that, but <laughs> you people, uh, including many of my local Lib Dem and Labour councillors, had, said we shouldn't do anything about it, so we're going to have to build on it. So... The great and the good in Harberton announced they were going to run a candidate against me at the next election or support any candidate against me unless I have opposed any new house building in the constituency. And I said I wasn't prepared to do that. It was a moral issue. We have to build houses for our children, and our grandchildren, unless they want all their children and grandchildren to have to go and work in the Hebrides or somewhere.
1: And yet Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove, they've talked tough on new house building the levelling up secretary in particular, and yet they've just conceded, haven't they, to a group of 60-odd Tory rebels, and the new house-building targets are not mandatory, only for guidance.
2: Well, I can understand the position of local MPs. I faced this, and I was able to face it down. My constituents seemed, over the years, got used to the idea that I sometimes adopted positions that they... Didn't necessarily share themselves, but they respected my judgment, so they re-elected me. But other people in more marginal seats get worried when um, hundreds of people write to them saying, we don't want any more houses, and they forget the thousands of people who do need more houses, but don't write to them. What are the implications of that for the Tory party if you're no longer the party of home ownership? Well, it's very serious. Ultimately, that's always been a big determinant of how people vote, whether they own or hope to own a home of their own where they can bring up their own family. And if, as I say, they're going to have to remain at home until they're middle-aged or live in squashed-in bedsits, they're less likely to think of themselves as Tories. The other parties are even worse on this. Actually, sometimes the Labour councils are in favour of building, and sometimes I was in alliance with some Labour councillors. But the worst people in the country are the Lib Dems who oppose every development and then complain about the housing shortage. Peter Lilly, thanks a lot
1: for joining us on Planet Normal. Great pleasure. So there he is, Alison, Lord Peter Lilly. He's a very analytical politician, as you know, and I think to his credit, he's polite, but he's firm, and he doesn't shy away from controversy.
0: No, wasn't it good to hear him, Liam? I mean, I think talking so much sense in a way that we despair of the present cabinet and particularly talking about net zero, something we've banged on about on Planet Normal, haven't we, about how are we going to achieve this thing? Is it affordable? He's talking very specifically about what it's going to cost, something that his successors have shied away from. Did you get the impression that he is despairing of the present cabinet, do you think?
1: I think he is. In fairness, we have to make clear that Peter Lilly, as he said, he does not deny that climate change is happening. He does not deny that it's a good thing to lower carbon emissions. He wants to do that. He's very expert in how we do do that. He knows a huge amount about the energy industry and the relative costs of the different ways we can generate electricity and other forms of energy. He doesn't agree with the sort of catastrophism that the human race is about to expire. And he doesn't buy The notion that renewable energy is always and everywhere cheaper than fossil fuels, which is very much a narrative that has taken hold of the political and media class. I should mention here in dispatches, Alison, I've been saying on planet normal for a while, how is it that if renewables are cheap, as we're always told, that electricity prices aren't come down as we use more renewables? The great Matt Ridley, formerly of this Planet Normal parish as a stowaway who did so much great work on the origins of COVID, of course, and is a very fine writer when it comes to science. Yeah, He's written authoritatively in The Spectator, the latest edition, about how using renewable energy, and again, he is somebody who wants to use more renewable energy, like me, like Peter Lilly, he says that our inability to store renewable energy properly and the impact it has on particularly gas-fired power stations – causing them to be ramped up, then taken off again, ramped up, taken off again, given the intermittency of renewable and given the lack of storage, that actually increases the cost of gas-fired power energy. And then the way the renewable contracts work, the renewable companies then sell their energy at the gas-fired price. So inefficiencies in renewables push up the price of gas-fired energy and electricity, which in turn the renewables then benefit from. It's a kind of circular Mm. argument. And he calls the renewable industry an example of crony capitalism. Now, I respect Matt Ridley very sincerely. I will be doing my own research, diving into that line of argument and inquiry. But I have to say, you know, Matt Ridley is a pretty analytical bloke and he doesn't use words lightly and he knows the law so, I think that's a very powerful argument in the spectator.
0: What I felt, you know, almost nostalgic for listening to Peter Lilly was a generation of Conservative ministers who were prepared to make the case, the argument for unpopular things that weren't going to perhaps go down well in their patch, but which they believed were important for the country at large. And I think. I don't know if Planet Normal listens there. We are in the presence of Britain's leading housing expert, in addition to all your other marvellous qualities. And so, as you said, we have seen every week Starmer accuse Sunak uh, Prime Minister's questions of being like a blancmange. I mean, literally caving on this target for building new houses. We had the excellent Charlotte Gill as a guest recently, a young woman talking about housing is so unaffordable that couples are postponing starting a family and this is having a a knock-on effect on our birth rate. This could not be more serious for the future of this country. Yet there they are, Liam, this week, caving into the, oh, we don't want any of those ghastly new houses on the edge of our picture book village. I mean, what are the Conservatives for if not to stand up for aspirational young people? It's really poor, I think.
1: I think we should mention, Alison, that Peter Lilly talked briefly about the European Convention on Human Rights and Immigration. He studied this very closely. He reckons that we don't have to remove ourselves from the ECHR the Home Secretary Sweller-Braveman can solve the immigration problem using primary legislation, he says other countries have done so and routinely flout ECHR anyway. So interesting that he wants to leave ECHR, but he thinks that we don't have to in order to solve this particular small boats immigration problem. Let's just park that, because we talked a lot about immigration last week. And on housing, I, I agree with you, housing is now rocketing back up to the top of the political agenda I think the cost of living crisis has really accentuated the unaffordability of housing for lots of young people. It's even harder for them to save. It's even harder for them to get the deposit together as interest rates rise. House prices are pretty much flat. And yet our ability to raise the money to buy the houses is getting harder and harder. And Michael Gove did drop mandatory targets for local authorities in the face of a rebellion by 50 or 60 odd Tory MPs. Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions had great fun telling him that Labour was prepared to help him get that legislation through the Prime Minister with Labour's help to push the rebels back. I thought that was very interesting. The only good bit of news on housing, I think, from a consumer point of view, is that while making that climb down, Michael Gove, the housing levelling up communities secretary, he did indicate he wanted a Competition and Markets Authority inquiry into the big house builders to examine whether or not there are restrictive practices. The big house builders deliberately restricting supply to keep prices high, deliberately sitting on planning permissions that they've received that small firms that would build out quickly can't then receive. Of course, the big developers deny this. Michael Gove doesn't believe them. He recommended to the CMA that they hold an inquiry. The CMA responded that they are mindful, they'll decide in January, whether or not to have the first competition inquiry into our big house builders since 2007-8. I'm personally very pleased about that. It's something that I argued for vehemently in my book about housing, Home Truths. We'll see if it happens, because when you tackle the big house builders, you are taking on one of the most powerful interest groups in Britain, who, along with the so-called NIMBYs, people who don't want more house building, form an incredible framework of vested interests to keep house building down. And the big developers, of course, they're also among the very largest donors to the Conservative and Unionist Party.
0: It's not like my co-pilot to be a shrinking violet. So I think (laughs) I should make it clear to listeners that this referring of the housing question to CMA is almost entirely a Liam Halligan victory. I'm cheering you on. You'll put some lead in the pencil of our useless politicians. Now, onto our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading them. We've got lots on health this week, obviously, a lot of pushback against some of the things that Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance claimed this week. Sandy says, I used to do four cancer operations a month pre-COVID. In the last two years, I did one cancer operation per month. So either COVID cures cancer or dot, dot, dot. And Mr. RW says, the NHS did shut down. We all know it. The country was panicked into staying home by the government and its scientific advisors. I was actually admitted to hospital during COVID, but to get there you had to have permission from 111, and that took over 36 hours. Afterwards, there was no physio except over the phone. Oh, I almost forgot. I was working for the NHS at the time and all clinics closed down in our hospital for months and months, including my own cancer clinic. But then again, what do I know? I'm not in charge of the collective selective corporate memory. Yes, selective memory syndrome. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of that, Liam. And then Sarah says, I hope all the people who supported lockdown are pleased with themselves. This was predicted by us the so-called granny killers and we were told we were talking rubbish and finally Mrs S says my dentist was literally boarded up with hazard tape no appointments at all even if your teeth were falling out yet i phoned a private dentist one day and was seen straight away i think there must have been two strains of covid the nhs sector one and the private sector one the private sector covid was the mild non-fatal variety Well said.
1: Now, last Sunday, Alison, you and I, we graced Telegraph Towers (laughs) with our presents. We put on our Santa hats and our funny Christmas glasses. We ate mince pies. We even slurped a bit of wine. And we were in a good Christmas mood because Telegraph readers were phoning in and pledging money to our wonderful Telegraph Christmas charity appeal between us and other writers who came in to take calls from Telegraph subscribers. We raised almost £90,000, and it was absolutely fabulous. And just one of the callers who I spoke to has written this, and this is from Kate. It was so good to be able to speak with you, Liam, when I phoned to donate on Sunday. Keith, my husband, and I, we do love Planet Normal. It provides such a morale boost to hear that there are other people around who are aware that we're enduring crazy times, and that are talking sense in the midst of chaos. We live in Perthshire, so we all suffer a double dose of madness. Frankly, I joined the ranks in 2014 and protested against Scottish independence, and will do so again if necessary. Keith and I will be listening to both of you again this week, as usual, for a very welcome dose of Planet Normal sanity. We send you both and your families all good wishes for Christmas and the New Year. Keith and Kate, also known as... The Scottish Velma. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a really terrifying creature, isn't it? The Scottish Velma. <laughs> Here's a really good one, Liam, referring back to the housing question. Claire says, I am writing as my younger son, 29, and his now wife, 30, with one child and expecting number two, have recently relocated from Clapham to Tunbridge Wells. I'm delighted they're now 16 miles from me. However, they bought a flat in Clapham four years ago for £625,000, courtesy of my wonderful father and mother, who worked, saved and put away money in bonds for all three grandchildren. They were incredibly lucky to have a down payment for property number one. Both of these young people have super degrees in microbiology and immunology. They now ended up in finance. The wife has a superbly paid job in the city and my son works for one of the big four they cannot not work full time. In order to work full time, they have a nanny two days a week and an excellent nursery for three days a week. This costs £2,500 a month. In addition to their increased mortgage, my son is still paying off his student loan. His wife would love to be on a three or four day week to be with her child. Cannot be done. I'm on granny duty, which I love. However when they do get time to take my grandson to swimming etc i find it so sad they are f- forced to work this hard to pay a mortgage in excess of 500,000 and extortionate childcare fees to hold down jobs i was a teacher quite senior but at least i had the benefit of school holidays and i was never home later than 5:45 and i was around for my children What are we doing to society, Alison and Liam? It seems that my son and his wife have little free time to enjoy their little boy because buying a home is so expensive. Keep the podcast going. You are my salvation. Thank you, Claire.
1: And Alison, this is why housing is the everything problem. So many other problems can be traced back to housing. There you have two incredibly successful young people And are they really living when they have to work so hard to buy what sounds like a pretty modest house in Tunbridge Wells, if that's the size of their mortgage? You know, it's massive, but it's tiny, given that Tunbridge Wells is near London. This is a huge issue, Alison. And that's why I wrote the book that I did. And I see absolutely no sign that the government or even the Labour Party have any proper plans in order to solve This astonishing difficulty that young people have, not just to buy, but to rent homes. There is a chronic shortage of homes. We need to build more. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison, it's your turn.
0: Well, I'm going to give it to Claire, lovely granny, writing such an eloquent email about housing. By the way, Liam, before we move on, let's remember, people have short memories, it was only a year ago that we were dangerously close to another Christmas lockdown. And thank God for Lord David Frost. If you're listening, David, thank you from all of us for marching away and saying we're not going to have another lockdown. Imagine how Dreadful that would be. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Liam Halligan likes to spend a lot of his fair time reading your charming messages and it boosts his already substantial ego. So please, please. And also, it helps other people to find us, apparently.
1: I'm not responding to that. (laughs) Just to say thanks to all Planet Normal listeners who picked up the phone last Sunday to donate to those fantastic Telegraph Christmas charities. This year, Age UK, Action for Children, Macmillan Cancer Support and the Royal British Legion Industries. We enjoyed speaking to so many of you, didn't we, Alison? And thanks for your wonderful generosity. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the Madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me.
0: And it's goodbye from him.